welcome to Praxis, whether you're joining us online or here in person. It's so good to be with you this Thursday night to be able to study the Word of God together and to fellowship as a community. For those who haven't had the pleasure of meeting, my name is Alan. I'm one of the pastors here at this church. Uh, I know that there's a lot of new faces, um, even for you guys getting to know a lot of new faces. And um, Lord willing, by his grace, this will be uh, the last week of practice where we will have to um, have face masks and uh, be, be safely distanced um, starting this Sunday and uh, on. Uh, we will be able to worship together without any restrictions. But if you've been part of Praxis, uh, God has been faithful to take us through many different formats from online to hybrid to now uh, in person. And so it looks like we are just emerging from the tunnel. As a fellowship group, we have been studying the book of Romans. And just as we are coming up from all the darkness of the first uh, chapters and really getting into the good stuff, we're actually going to take a break from our exposition of Romans. Uh, we'll do this from time to time to kind of change things up and provide space for a topical series or to address various issues. And it also makes sense because providentially, uh, since we just finished the main section of first main section Romans, and uh, now we're in the summer. So summer is upon us given how our schedules are in flux and people are traveling, now also feels like an opportune time to press pause on Romans, to teach on some subject matters we think would be beneficial and relevant for our group, for Praxis, the Singles Young Adult Ministry here at Lighthouse. Uh, if you're wondering, we will resume Romans in the fall. But a lot of groups do this. A lot of ministries will take the summer off to study something different and a popular pick amongst churches is the book of Psalms, right? And it's calling this series something um, like Summer in the Psalms. And so our youth group here at Lighthouse is actually doing that. It's cute. It's very clever. You know, you have that alliteration, even though the P in Psalms is silent there. Um, for practice, we don't want to be copycats. So we're not going to do Summer in the Psalms. We instead are going to do Summer in the Proverbs. So no alliteration there. Although... Um, actually, we do have alliteration because we're calling our series Wisdom Works. So I guess we are just as cute, just as clever. Um, but to give you guys kind of a quick rundown of what we're going to tackle for our summer series, tonight will be more of an introduction, setting the table for the weeks to come. We'll break down our time primarily into two simple points, the need for wisdom and the source of wisdom. That's all we're going to look at, the need for wisdom and the source of wisdom. And then in the following months, we'll look at how this divine biblical wisdom then intersects and applies to various topics, various aspects of life. What the book of Proverbs has to teach us about, say, work, friendship, communication, etc. But tonight we start at square one. So if you haven't already, I invite you to turn in your Bibles to Proverbs chapter 1. Proverbs chapter 1. We'll be focusing only on one verse, verse 7. But for the sake of context, let's start in verse 1. So I'll read from verses 1 to 7, and then we will pray for our time. This is the word of God. Proverbs 1, 1. 
the Proverbs of Solomon, son of David, king of Israel. To know wisdom and instruction, to understand words of insight, to receive instruction in wise dealings, in righteousness, justice, and equity. To give prudence to the simple, knowledge and discretion to the youth. Let the wise hear and increase in learning. And the one who understands, obtain guidance. To understand a proverb and a saying, the words of the wise and their riddles. Verse 7. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Fools despise wisdom and instruction. Let's pray. God, we need your help. Because we often act like fools. We are puffed up, arrogant in heart and in mind, thinking we know better, that we can figure things out on our own. And so shatter us, that you might make us humble, bring us low so that you can build us up, that you would use your word to correct and to reprove, to encourage, to point us to the fact that we can be wise. And this is not some pursuit we seek out apart from you, but this is something you have desired for your people. Lord, that we might know you, love you, and to live for you. And so use your word, Lord. We pray for your help. We pray for your grace and mercy to illumine our minds, to expose our hearts to not just your truth, but how lovely and right it is. Teach us. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, the book of Proverbs was predominantly written by Solomon, King David's son. And Solomon, as we, most of us know, was often hailed as the most or the wisest person to ever live. You recall the account in 1 Kings when Solomon is succeeding his father, rising to the throne. God actually appears to him in a dream and grants him whatever, whatever he desires. This is a real-life genie-in-the-bottle moment. But instead of asking for long life or riches, Solomon requests an understanding mind to govern the people. The ability to discern between good and evil. Solomon, in a word, asks for wisdom. And I know what you're thinking. Because if we're honest with ourselves, we kind of shrug our shoulders, right? We're a bit disappointed. This guy could have had anything, and he chose wisdom. I mean, that's not even something you can hold or tangibly enjoy. Solomon's request, in our opinion, is a letdown. But I think that's revealing. It demonstrates how different of an attitude and assessment of wisdom that we have from the scriptures. And just hear the urgency in Solomon's voice as he pleads with his son in the book of Proverbs. Proverbs 4 7 says this The beginning of wisdom is this get wisdom. You see, more than a well paying job, a house in a safe neighborhood, or being popular amongst your peers, Solomon commends wisdom. Wisdom as the crowning jewel of all we could seek after. And just knowing this is half the battle because you and I, we don't know what we don't know. 
So before we even get into our text, our first point is to take a closer look, to really establish the need for wisdom. Why should we want it? Why should we believe what the scriptures say about wisdom? That there is fundamentally a need for wisdom. Now, I want to ask, what comes into your mind when you hear that word, wisdom? Maybe you imagine an old wrinkly sage sitting on top of a mountain. You have to journey through rough terrain to reach that spot and then be imparted with some esoteric secret to the meaning of life. Or maybe when you hear wisdom, you think of smart people the valedictorian of school, a professional chess player, or the successful CEO of your company. Maybe your mind gravitates towards creative geniuses like Albert Einstein, Thomas Edison, and Steve Jobs. But we know by observation, study, and experience, the most brilliant people don't always make the brightest decisions. Some of the sharpest people have made shipwreck of their lives. There is no strict one-to-one correlation between high IQ scores and the good life, successful life, however you want to define that. And that's because wisdom is not just about knowing stuff or sheer brain power or having an encyclopedic memory. It can include those elements, but wisdom, biblical wisdom, is so much more. In the Bible, the word for wisdom is chokmah. And it's really about skill and competency. It's taking all the education, all the giftings and resources you have, and knowing what to do with it. In other words, it's not just right knowledge, but it's the right knowledge at the right time, done in the right way. Biblical wisdom is the art of skillful living. Skillful living. You know, you may know about musical notes, chord constructions, and meter, but you develop the skill of playing piano when you've put these things into practice until you've done it enough to be a proficient musician. You may go through med school, study bone structures and suture patterns, but you develop the skills necessary of a doctor after hospital rounds where you have actually operated on patients until you become an adept surgeon in your own right. Well, the same is true for life, for living the good life. And by good, I mean as defined by God, as God intended. And the Bible tells us you need to develop the right skills to be wise. Sure, the Bible gives us commands some strict parameters. You have the 10 commandments, right? Don't murder. You have other commands like love your neighbor. But that is still pretty broad, pretty general, right? What about, we might ask, self-defense? Or if someone attacks a family member with a weapon? What does it look like to love your neighbor when they disagree with you? When they yell at you, when they ask for a ride to the abortion clinic? God's instruction, yes, they fence off what's in bounds and what's out of bounds. But wisdom is required to play in between the lines. 
when issues and matters are not explicitly addressed. Think about basketball. There are clear rules to the game. You need to dribble the ball, right? You can't hack someone when they, uh, on the arm when they go up to shoot. But the rules don't spill out every minute detail. They don't stipulate all the ways to defend an opponent or to score a basket. You need to strategize. You need to think of when to double team the superstar or to leave the worst player open to shoot a hoop. And when you have the ball, when you're on offense, you need to figure out when to pull up for a J or to dunk from the free throw line. Here's the point. To play and win the game, you need more than the rule book. You need wisdom. And look, we all know life is not always black and white. It can get very messy. Not all situations and scenarios are clear to us. Wisdom then helps us handle the gray. Now, we often think as Christians based on what's sinful and what's right. Those are kind of the two main categories we operate on. But at times, that's too simplistic. Enter wisdom. Wisdom provides additional categories to work through. What is not only sinful and what's right, but what is wise and what is foolish. I'll give you some examples. Is it sinful to eat dirt? That's rhetorical. You don't have to answer. No. There's no direct prohibition in the scriptures against eating dirt, but is it wise? Probably not. Is it sinful to take your life savings and to cash it so that you can buy Pokemon cards or get front row seats to a BTS concert? No comment, right? You can figure that one out on your own. Now, these examples are extreme, but consider the plethora of choices, complicated choices we're confronted with, many on a daily basis. Should I respond to a nasty email? And not only that, how should I do it? Should I comment or post on Facebook or Instagram? Should I take this job, counter, negotiate? Should I date that person or wait? Should I rent or buy a house? And the list goes on and on. And we know, if we flip through our Bibles, that the scriptures don't provide every answer to every question we might have or encounter. Instead, we're exhorted to be wise people. So that in whatever context or challenge you face, you are equipped with the proper skills and tools to then figure it out. Maybe not always perfectly, but at least wisely. And this is so much better. Since wisdom is principled and timeless, it can be used for any scenario. And that's why this summer study is not only appropriate for practice, it is necessary for us. Wisdom is crucial for this stage of life. In your 20s, heading into your 30s, you are embarking on quite the adventure. And for most of you, you know, school is done or near completion. You've got your whole life seemingly ahead of you. Perhaps you're acclimating to your first job, hunting for your second. Maybe you're living on your own or with others. You're learning how to do things, to take ownership, 
responsibility, how to meal prep, balance bills, keep yourself busy. Maybe you're even owning some of your beliefs and convictions on how to live. And through the years, you've accumulated the education, the relationships, the resources. Now it's time to weave it all together, to live wisely. Now, if wisdom is indispensable, if it's this important, if we need it this badly, how do we get it? Where do we go to acquire this wisdom? We'll reach our second point, the source of wisdom, the source of wisdom. And just so you know, this one is a lot longer. If you think based on the first one, bring me out of here in 10 minutes. Now, this is where we're going to be spending the bulk of our time, the source of wisdom. We turn to our passage for tonight. And as we've read earlier, the entire section, you're kind of left with this epic feeling from the first six verses of Proverbs. It already sounds so wise. This language that is magnificent, maybe even magical. All of this then culminates in verse 7. Solomon is disclosing his intentions in verse, verses 1 to 6, but verse 7 is his giveaway. It's his thesis. This is the door in. This is the key to unlocking the rest of the book, true wisdom. This is the source. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Wait, knowledge, not wisdom? Don't worry. I know how to read. Okay, I'm not completely dumb. Sure, verse 7 talks about knowledge, but knowledge and wisdom are interconnected. At times in the scriptures, synonymous. Just look at the parallelism in verse 7. Proverbs, if we're familiar with this book, often comes to us in pairs, couplets. And sometimes the second line will just reiterate the same point of the first line, but just phrase it a little differently. Sometimes the second line will achieve a similar effect by highlighting, by putting it in the opposite fashion. It's the compare and contrast tactic. And so we read, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge, whereas fools despise wisdom. So here, Solomon is talking about the same thing, about a knowledge applied, about wisdom practiced. And if you're still unconvinced, Listen to Proverbs 9, verse 10. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. It almost matches verbatim with Proverbs 1, 7, except wisdom is substituted for knowledge. Solomon is sketching the full picture. True knowledge and wisdom flow from one source, one fountainhead, the fear of the Lord. And if the fear of the Lord is the source for wisdom, then it is imperative that we really grasp what this means. In fact, this expression is scattered throughout the scriptures, reinforcing how significant it is. So we ought to pay careful thought to really understand the fear of the Lord. First thing first, we need to do some unlearning. Let's dump our preconceived uh, notions about fear in order to properly learn what it is according to the Bible. You see, upon hearing the word fear, we might think of an unpleasant emotion or a physiological reaction. 
right? We get scared and then our heart pumps. We might even import and adopt our previous experiences and conceptions of fear, throw it onto God and assume, well, this must be what it means to fear the Lord. I mean, we make the same kind of mistake with how we use the word love or we toss around in everyday language. We love our dog. We love tacos. We love God. But obviously, we don't love these things in the same exact way, or we shouldn't. There's nuance. There's shades of differences depending on the object of that verb. Well, the same is true for fear. We may have all sorts of phobias. We may fear spiders, Freddy Krueger, or being single for the rest of our lives. But to fear God, to fear God is not the same as, say, being afraid of the dark. Can there be some overlap and similarity? Of course. But like loving God, there is a distinction, a, category, a categorical difference even to the fear of the Lord. To see this, just consider how Jesus speaks about fear. Turning your Bibles to Mark chapter 4. And we'll examine this for ourselves. Mark chapter 4 might be a familiar passage. Jesus and his disciples are out at sea. The storm is raging. The boat is filling with water. And I love this. Jesus, he's asleep. And Jesus is asleep while the disciples are panicking. And we can sympathize. We get it. They fear their demise of dying. So they wake Jesus up only for him to still the waters by rebuking the wind. And then Jesus continues the rebuking train by turning and admonishing his own disciples in verse 40. It says, he said to them, why are you so afraid? Have you still no faith? The disciples are uh, chided. Their faith reveals a Uh, Their fear reveals a lack of faith, that they didn't trust him. And yet what's curious is what follows in verse 41. We continue, and they were filled. Okay, so after they're rebuked about being afraid, it says in verse 41, and they were filled with great fear. They said to another, who then is this, that even the wind and the sea obey him? Did you catch that? After the waves subside, after all is well and calm, the disciples, they still fear. But Jesus doesn't correct them a second time for fearing. The disciples aren't rebuked for fearing. They just feared the wrong thing. What was outside their little boat than the one inside? We see this again in Matthew 10. You can go ahead and flip there as well. Matthew 10. Jesus is teaching. And I want you to notice the transfer. Jesus relocates our fear. In verse 28, he charges the people, do not fear those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. Jesus is saying, don't concern yourself ultimately with those who can physically harm or hurt you or even put you to death. 
Fear the one who can put you in hell. Yet here again, the lesson is not that fear itself is wrong. It's just misplaced. We need to fear the right thing. To put it another way, Jesus is really talking about control. The idea of control. Who or what rules your heart? Is it natural disasters, persecution, or God himself? And by way of application, practice, what is it for you? Is it good health? Being liked by others? Comfort and security? Oswald Chambers was insightful when he said, the remarkable thing about fearing God is that when you fear God, you fear nothing else. Whereas if you do not fear God, you fear everything else. And it makes sense. Without God, you will worry about your reputation. You will grow anxious about your future. You will fret over your relations. Without God at the center, everything spirals out of control because only he is truly sovereign. Now, the astute Bible reader may ask about other verses that seem to contradict the ones we've covered so far. We read passages and verses like 1 John 4, 18, where the, you know, are we supposed to fear God or not? But this is where 1 John 4, 19 helps us. It clarifies because it continues. It says, we love because he first loved us. What's the connection? Here? Well, follow John's train of thought. There is a sinful fear that is proper if you stand guilty before a holy God. That without Jesus Christ, we ought to be terrified of God's righteous wrath and the punishment that awaits. It's what we studied in Romans 1 to 3. That's fitting for a sinner, not for a saint, not for those who have been redeemed by the blood of Christ. Yes, both Christians and non-Christians ought to fear the Lord. But as believers, ours isn't marked by dread or horror. Why? Because we can boldly approach the throne of grace. We can stand confident because we are in Christ. We no longer need to shrink back scared that we'd be struck down for our sin. Jesus has paid our penalty. And so with deep gratitude and joy, we strive to please him because he loved us first. And I would argue that this is what, is actu what it actually means to fear the Lord. It's not just wooden or mechanical where we as good Christians know that we should acknowledge God as central to life. No, our actions sync up with our affections. That the fear of the Lord is an earnest love for God where he looms largest, where he holds greatest influence, the biggest motivation for all that you do and all that you are, the fear of the Lord is when God reigns supreme in and through your life because you love him. Let me say that again. The fear of the Lord is when God reigns supreme in and through your life because you love him. And that's hard for us to accept. Because we have come to understand fear as something that's bad. But fear doesn't have to just carry a negative connotation. 
It can also describe the bodily response you have in the presence of greatness. When you are overwhelmed, think of the chills you might get when you witness the beauty of a sunset or how your knees go weak when your crush smiles at you. In these scenarios, you tremble not out of dread, but out of sheer delight. You know, when asked in an interview, the great theologian Michael Scott said, quote, do I want people to fear me or love me? Both. I want people to fear how much they love me. It's funny, right? You never thought office would have somewhat accurate biblical statement. But that's actually not too far off from the idea of fearing the Lord. We'll turn to another Michael. Michael Reeves, an actual theologian, clarifies and he says this. True fear of God is true love for God defined. True fear of God is true love for God defined. It is the right response to God's full-orbed revelation of himself in all his grace and glory. Full-orbed, not just cherry-picking attributes. Because we probably heard the fear of the Lord explained as holy reverence, as if we regard highly just because, solely because of certain traits that he has. You know, that he's transcendent, he's otherly, he's righteous and thrice holy, and therefore he is worthy of our admiration, of our respect, of our obedience. And that's certainly true. It's just incomplete. You know, many preachers have drawn from the Chronicles of Narnia to illustrate this kind of fear, right? When Susan asked Mr. Beaver about Aslan, the great lion, and she inquires, I thought Aslan was man. Is he quite safe? I shall feel rather nervous about meeting a lion. To which Mr. Beaver replies, safe? Who said anything about safe? Of course he isn't safe, but he's good. And I think that's a helpful and great illustration. I just wish we could add two words to really round out the picture. Christian, the Lord isn't just good. He's good to you. To you. And that makes all the difference. Yes, it's nice to know a king who is noble, just. A king who wields authority. But that's no reason to celebrate if the king is on the opposing side. If the king is your enemy. No one melts your heart. And causes you to gush with warmth is when this king is your king. When he's not just a mighty person, but your personal father. And when you see God through this lens, fear becoming. Fear expresses the visceral and physical intensity of being enamored with God. A joy that shakes you down to your bones when you exult in God. And his marvelous beauty, his love, his sovereignty, his mercy are not only good, but are good for you, for those in Christ. That the Lord is not just kind, he is kind towards you. He is not just patient, he is patient towards you. That's when we are filled with wonder, awe, and love. A fear that doesn't drive us away from him but towards him, 
Why? Because we can't bear the thought of being without him. You see, we don't revere God from a distance. We enjoy him up close and personal. We don't merely give approval to all his excellent qualities, but we intimately experience them as his children. Wisdom, then, is not a science. It's a relationship with this living God. And that's why Solomon is so specific. In verse 7, he doesn't exhort us to fear some random deity or amorphous figure in the sky. No, he pinpoints this fear on the Lord. I want you to notice it's all capitals in your Bible. This is God's own name. Tetragrammaton. Yahweh. Yahweh. The relational, personal, covenant-keeping God of the Bible. Who is he? Exodus 34, 6 says, He is the Lord, the Lord, merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. Like how a son's world revolves around his loving father. So the fear of the Lord is how the God-centeredness is the God-centeredness in the lives of his children. And this, Solomon declares, is the linchpin. This is the beginning, the foundation, and the first step in acquiring true biblical knowledge and wisdom. And maybe we don't like that because it doesn't sound very sophisticated, very fancy. In fact, in our hurried society, we often believe the quicker, the better. That's why we hate traffic. We want what's immediate, right? Pull up Google and download the data at blazing speeds. Fast forward through the commercials so you can get on with your sitcom. And dieting and working out, it's fine if we can see results tomorrow. And we apply the same attitude to wisdom. We want to rush through a program, a course, or master techniques so that we can finally attain, gain, achieve wisdom. Just give me the answers. Tell me what to do. But Solomon slows us down. There is no way to microwave true biblical wisdom. It is cultivated through months and years because there's no shortcuts when it comes to relationship. Just like how you need to study and know, say a spouse in order to understand how to please that person. You need to know, study and relate with God. You need to know his heart. Biblical wisdom is not interested in spitting out all the right answers, but instead molding you to becoming the right person. And this primarily happens through relationships. Just think of your life. Think of the values you might have. Maybe even the idiosyncrasies, the quirky way you do dishes or laundry, or your affinity for certain foods and hobbies. My guess is a lot of this, these patterns and what's been cultivated in our lives haven't been shaped through a textbook or a school lecture. My guess is that the most influential source has probably been people, people who have stayed in your life, your parents, close friend, or someone you really trust and respect. And if our goals in life, 
in the Christian life is to love and please God, to live wisely as he's designed it, then it is utter foolishness to cut him out of the equation of our thoughts, ambitions, and decision-making process. The wisest way to live is in relationship with the one who created it all. To live quorum Deo before the presence of God. You know, many of us would be much wiser if we just apply this one simple principle. Are we living before the presence of God? Are we taking our problems, our feelings, our possessions, our desires, our goals, and bringing it into the presence of the Lord, allowing our theology to speak louder than anything else? Do we have a perspective, an analysis, an examination that includes God? Are we blind to it? In practice, where do you turn to for wisdom? Do you scour the world wide web? Do you consult the friend with the most degrees? And I'm not saying these can't be helpful avenues and resources, but is the beginning and the best source for wisdom found in the scriptures, in the word of God, the Lord who is sovereign, who made it all, who controls it all. We do well to take a cue from the Psalms. Be still and know that I am God. Do you know and love this God? Do you fear him? Because I promise you, if we were to simply sift our lives through the fear of the Lord, we would be spared many foolish decisions and be much wiser for it. The starting line is the fear of the Lord. This is the way in, the path of wisdom. Because in the coming weeks, we will look at what the Proverbs has to say about various topics. But we must never forget this is not merely good advice or proven tips, but wisdom from God, born out of a relationship with him. Solomon, the wisest man ever, he not only wrote a lot of Proverbs, but he also penned another book in which, tragically, he chronicles his downfall. In the book of Ecclesiastes, probably one of my favorite books, along with the 65 others. But in Ecclesiastes, we find Solomon at the end of his life where he journals about his attempts at living the good life. And this guy had, he had it all. He had full access to knowledge, riches, and pleasures galore. And yet he wasn't skillful in using these blessings to draw closer to God. In fact, pursuing these things without God spoiled the gift themselves, and they left Solomon empty. And the reoccurring refrain in the book, in his experiments for, to, to find lasting joy, was vanity. Vanity of vanities. When he searched for fulfillment without the fear of the Lord. Solomon, ironically, lived foolishly. And Ecclesiastes almost reads as a letter of regret. But the silver lining, the small beacon of hope, is found in the last chapter. Having messed up, having squandered and perhaps wasted his life, Solomon passes on a sobering pearl of wisdom. He looks back on all his foolishness and he comes to his senses. 
and is discipling future generations. You know, we often hear, learn from your mistakes. Solomon has a better one, learn from mine. And he wraps it all up in Ecclesiastes 12, 13. says, the end of the matter, all has been heard. Fear God and keep his commandments. For this is the whole duty of man. And where Solomon fails, another king would rise up and succeed. And Jesus comes many years later and he announces something startling. He claims someone greater than Solomon is here. And Jesus proves it. He teaches with authority. He instructs in parables. He goes toe-to-toe with the scholars of his day, and he emerges victorious. But Jesus does more than just wax eloquent and debate well. He welcomes and cares for the outcast. He heals the lame. He loves sinners. He preaches the gospel. Jesus is not just wise. He is wisdom personified demonstrating what the fear of the Lord looks like in joyful obedience to his father, living in the presence of God. And in the greatest twist, he takes the place of the fool to redefine true wisdom. Jesus goes to the cross. And there at Calvary, Jesus showcases the wisdom of God in the most unexpected way. He dies. He dies for sinners like you and me. So that by grace, salvation is is extended. That if we repent, place our faith in him, we'd be forgiven, reconciled. Relationship with the Lord restored. So rich and powerful. We're not only spared of eternal damnation, but we're given new life. We are transformed. So we too can follow in the path of Christ and live wisely. But it all starts here. Before we look granularly at other topics, we look at God. Do we know him? Do we fear the Lord? Do we love him? Because that indeed is the beginning of wisdom. Let's pray. God, your word tells us that the cross is folly to those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved, it is your power put on full display. And we pray that Christ would be so mesmerizing to us that in him we would be overwhelmed by his splendor and majesty, his loveliness, that we would find our affections arrested We'd be captivated by him, that we would pursue, follow him. Lord, because we understand your wisdom indeed is the best. It is not only right and true, but it is good to us and for us. And we pray that we'd be shaped by your word. That we we would not turn from your word and your wisdom to play the fool, but Lord, in humility, We would submit to the scriptures because you speak to us. Lord, may we commune with you in such a way that you inform everything in our lives, that we would not be wise for wisdom's sake, but we would be wise that we can draw closer to you, to know your heart and then to live for you as you have designed life. We ask for your help. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.